0: to the peripheral views podcast uh this is your host jake errol is my co-host yet again we're back for our 13th episode um a fourth installment into the biography series uh first things first what's up errol how we doing tonight oh not too bad same as always same as always hanging in there that's what i like to hear so uh yeah, we're gonna dive into the biography series tonight. Uh, first things first, we'll knock out a little bit of housekeeping just to hit the notes, you know where they are. Uh you can catch us on X slash Twitter if it fits you, um, at peripheral v123. Um find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com forward slash peripheral views one two three. We are also on we have a YouTube channel. Um throw us in the search bar in the search bar, youtube.com, um peripheral views podcast quick and easy to find and please subscribe do yourself or do us a favor and uh, not only subscribe but leave some commentary some feedback for us um, as per usual we're also on apple podcast and spotify if you happen to listen to us on either one of those platforms please hit the subscribe button rate and review for us helps us out a bunch keeps the traffic flowing um, and lastly we are at uh, peripheralreviewspodcast.com so check out the uh, new website. All of our content is uploaded on there along with uh, we've got a ratings page that we submit every time we do a piece of content in the film series or the music series. We'll be putting our ratings up there um, as we course along through the development of the podcast. Um, bunch of contact stuff on there too, if you want to reach out. So uh, also I should hit our Gmail is uh, peripheral views podcast at gmail.com for any further feedback. So that's the formalities. Um Let's dive in. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to be talking about a literary figure coming out of the far east. Our previous episode was on the Martin Scorsese theological epic Silence from 2016. Um that was a deep dive. Uh we had a lot to discuss and there was so much to discuss about the film because there is just so much theology and religiosity in the, in the film. Um and it does take place in the same basically the same uh location that will be uh, discussing today's figure, we are talking Yukio Mishima, um, a literary figure from the uh, 20th century um, a monumental Japanese figure in the world of literature as far as that goes. Um, an author and I like to call him an exhibitionist. I think that's like a nice um I've heard I've read that term to describe the man. Um,
1: I've heard I've heard curator.
0: that's nice that that makes that fits too. absolutely
1: like a curator of both his uh, own body and like uh of like of like spirit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's like a, I mean, we'll get into the details of like how that fits um, as a descriptor for him because he was a unique, just a unique figure and had some unique perspectives and worldviews um, that we'll start diving into and how he kind of channeled that, like the channeling of his like, um, spiritual beliefs slash political beliefs slash cultural beliefs um was like very fragmented at times and also like pretty uh could also be pretty straightforward and also very extreme at other points so but we'll get into those details i wanted to hit a couple of uh notes while we're talking i guess literature um just to before we dive into the content of the day i like to do a little bit of personalization of where errol and i are at with literature so um Carol, I'll let you kick it off first if you do have anything, um, any books or uh, big articles, anything like that that you've been reading. Um, what's what's your reading? Um, I guess your reading diet as of late. Um,
1: nothing. Uh, well, I was gonna say nothing too crazy, but I've been picking and prying at a uh, at uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Ooh, Geez, and um, heavy. like a quick a uh, quick rundown. It's just. Uh, pretty much about a uh, I I, I want to describe him as like a lovable idiot, just like a guy who like means well has like been well off, and he just wants to like help people out. And in a world where you know you can just like profit off of other people, like it's almost like it's seen. It's uh, it's like you're stupid not to. It's like you'd be stupid to help people. So uh, um, he ends up. Uh, going to like an insane asylum because he figures that's the only place left for like good people in the world um i I just started it and um i chose to start reading it just off of uh, like the synopsis of that
0: but i mean it's a it's like a it's a pillar in the (laughs) in the pantheon of like just just world literature um yeah dostoyevsky i can't i mean that's it's heavy heavy content it's like really really deep stuff and he does not um, he, uh, I, I guess the only experience, the only like relationship I have with Dostoevsky is literally his only book it, that I've ever read was Brothers K, obviously. Um, well, that's, that's like his biggest one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's it's like the one. And that's why I, and, I, and it was a slog because I'm not like a voracious reader. Um, it took me, I, I've gotten through it probably in total actually twice. Imagine that. Um, but like never one full, I guess, well, it was it was fragmented reading for the fir- the first go through but the second time I piecemealed it like right after uh, college um probably like over 10 years ago at this point and um, it it took me like chunks of like a, a several different months um I'd have to stop and then I'd walk away from the book then pick it back up and like and obviously I've read like the grand inquisitor or the is it the Grand inquisitor or Inquisition I can never remember which but that that obviously that's like the big chunk of that book that's like really um you know uh it, it's a major major piece of literature that like attacks the uh the topic of religion and its role in morality mm-hmm. um so it's like you know it's it's just one of those it's just one of those uh sections of a book that you just you, you kind of have to read They they tell you that and i mean it's it's well worth it it's <laughs> It's one of those books I've actually wanted to go back to, um, and I think I I probably will. I actually, speaking of which, I'll I'll, I'll kind of push forward my uh, my reading catalog as of late. I've um, I've been reading a book. Uh, I've been terrible about novels and fiction re- fiction reading um, in the last like ten years or so. It's been basically nothing but a steady diet of nonfiction. Um, what I've been reading right now is a book called uh, "Gross Gross National Happiness." by uh, Arthur C. Brooks. Um, and he's like this, he's actually been doing the rounds on a podcast on the podcast, like scene right now he's doing um, he's been on Tim Ferriss and uh, he, I think he was on uh ritual um, just, just making the rounds because he has a new book out that he actually co-wrote with Oprah. Um, and he's, he's basically a doctor of uh, he's a, he's a professor at uh, uh, Harvard business school and he teaches like the most popular class there, which is like, it he talks about like the science the neuroscience of happiness um mm. and how like it's not um you shouldn't like like the idea like i guess the main philosophy if I can like chalk his like perspective up is that like happiness is not like a destination and people seem to think that it is like like there's a some finish line to it and it's it's really just a feeling and you shouldn't chase it it's it's about like acknowledging it and uh he he inserts like he interwoves like a lot he's worked with like the dalai lama so he's done a lot of work with like buddhism and um well
1: yeah i was gonna say it seems a lot like just
0: living in the moment yeah i mean it's it's more it's it's not even so much that it's 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 like perspective it's about how you it's how you interact or engage with your emotions like it's emotional management in in a lot of ways like and that means that doesn't necessarily mean that like only people who have trouble with emotional, uh, management, like emotional management is a task that everyone has to undergo. Like that's, that's just part of being a conscious person. Um, like if you, if you have consciousness, like you have emotions and your brain is going to do a lot of different things with neurochemistry that you've got to manage. So it's, um, yeah, his, his podcast rounds are great. And I've been trying to chip away at gross national happiness for a while. And I've actually had the book for, a while. And I finally, once I saw that he's got a new book out, I felt like it was worth cracking into one of his older ones. Um, and so far so good. I mean, it's like, it's tied a lot to like income and like, I think one of the, t- one of the bo- parts of the book I remember most is like him saying something along the, he like, he cited this data that indicated that like levels of happiness actually kind of level out. And then they start to slowly drop off once a person, um, earns more than like $75,000 a year. Um, which is like shocking to hear, but also not because. Um, mo yeah. money, mo problems. Bingo. Biggie said it. Biggie was talking about this shit way before some Harvard, you know, some Harvard profess. Because <laughs> <laughs> he learned that on the streets. He found that like, he's like, I could
1: sell. He's like, what do I? He's like, how do I feel if I flip every <laughs> single brick in the city right now and have all that money? He's like, what, what am I going to do with that?
0: He's also just like, I got a target on my back though. Mm hmm he was the man though that's but listen hey we talked about this in the previous podcast like there is some fucking wisdom within the world of hip-hop and some of these uh some of the right like because I mean it, hip-hop is like the most like, there's the most amount of writing in hip-hop like and, and it's it's gone a different direction in probably the last like 10 years or so but um the people who are like doing that writing like the really like lengthy lyricism, like they've got to think about what they say like a lot and which means they're thinking about what they're thinking a lot too. So, Um, but anyway, that's, that's my selection. I've also been reading, uh, well, two things. I've been reading. um, This is just passing. I just, if I'm sitting on the couch and I'm just listening to my daughter talk my ear off, um, I'll just crack open. There's this book called boundless parenting uh, by Ben Greenfield. Um, He's like a fitness guy. He does a lot of like, homeopathic stuff like he's a like endurance athlete and he's uh i mean he some of his ideas are really good some of them are actually not so good and i don't agree with much of them but um it's just a lot of it's it's nice to kind of like balance out the palette of parenting tools um by just kind of diving into stuff even if you don't agree with it at least it kind of shapes your perspective or validates some thoughts you had about parenting yeah Um,
1: exactly yeah You you don't know exactly how you feel about something until you encounter it
0: yeah, like, like for instance, like I don't know, Errol, you tell me. Were, were you spanked as a child?
1: Uh, yes. And then overall, there was a threat of violence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, like, my mom wouldn't be like, "I'm gonna spank you." Like, no matter what, like if you if you're bad, you get spanked. But I'd be hit if I acted up. And then there'd be times where she'd be like, "You know what could happen," and then I'd be like, hmm. "Right." Well, like cause you do it bit.
0: once and then it's like, I make the joke all the time. Is like when I was really little, my dad, like we didn't get spanked very, I think maybe a little bit like really early on, but not, not really much. Um, but my dad would like, he would like, when we were really little, he would like pinch our tush. Like if you got in trouble, he'd like send you up to your room and then you'd walk by him and he would like pinch your tush on the way up. Just give you little, an inch. Yeah. Just give you that little, that little one time just with the thumb and the index just just on your way by and i made the joke to my wife i was like i to this day cannot walk past my father without like feeling that like oh shit don't don't it <laughs> <by this, bro." laughs> <Punching laughs> 31 years old that shit's still there i can't get rid of it yeah but it's one of those deals where like so like that's part of the book is like um i wanted i, I wanted it because i actually don't believe in like hitting kids period like i think that that's fucking i think it's like uh barbaric and like well the
1: thing is you teach you teach them that that's
0: how you handle a frustrating moment is with like physical action and like but i wanted to hear the best argument for it that i could and i actually found it in that book and there was like um because he's like kind of religious i guess i mean it seems as though he's i don't know how how it ties into his parenting but like he was saying that like um in the book he indicates that like if the child's doing something in to endanger themselves or other or others around them, then like, that's worth a spanking. Or if the child is um, who, like overtly sins, like it does something against the word of God. then like, that's worth spanking, which like, I definitely, that one I can parse with easily. But then I was thinking about like, if the child's like, okay, the child is about to like burn themselves on the stove. And like, you'd never want them to do that again and understand it but you don't want them to burn on the stove. Like I can understand the the pathway to being like, okay, I need to introduce a physical, a physical outcome. So the child knows that this, so
1: is like end. you, you learn it. Cause here's the thing. You can learn something two ways. It's through like yes. experience or like being told. And like, if you are at a certain age and like, you go to stick a fork in the outlet, like you don't learn that lesson. Like you, like, you know, you might end up at the hospital. I, I think outlets yeah. are like better now, but I'm not risking that. No. so Like, like
0: like for me, yeah. it's like, uh, but but can you get? Can, so like, if you have a child that doesn't communicate like with full dot full, full language yet, like if they're still in like the development sta- statement or stages of of language, like how can you how can you portray to them or communicate to them that this is like a date like their lives are in danger if they don't even understand the words? So you, to me, it's just how, like, bro, you just have to do a better job of prevention, right? Like that's well, in my
1: that and um, if you are. Uh, If you are raising a child, like, you know, reasonably, like you're never like, not never, but you're rarely raising your voice, right? Like you're not, like you're always like just trying to be calm and explain stuff. So if you do raise your voice, like if you just like yell or like you do like, hey, like, you know, to get their attention, they're going to, that's going to invoke the same response that it would like, not the same response, but the same.
0: Yeah. uh, Similar.
1: yeah, the same merit of response, and it would be if if you're like, I'm about to beat your head. Like you're gonna look <laughs> over, or if you're just like, Hey, look, what are you doing? If you don't always, if you're not always louder, you're not yelling, and they go to do something, and you're like, Stop! Like they're not just gonna who let me, gremlin my way to the you know outside the doggy door.
0: Well, it's also true what you just said. Like I've noticed that like at first when uh, my oldest was like when she was starting to like, you know, misbehave in like these little, like two-year-old ways and such, which there's plenty of. Um, I noticed that like, I did, I absolutely noticed that the more I would give like stern tone to my voice, like I, I try not to like raise my voice. I, I try to avoid that. And I'm, you know, as a parent, you have your slip up. Sometimes you, sometimes you get a little louder than you should. Sometimes it's, you know, t- sometimes you're stern when you really just shouldn't be, you're just being unreasonable and cranky um and but i would say that like at like i found myself starting to do that more frequently like where i'm like using that stern tone and guess what you hit the nail on the head that shit became way less effective Mm -hmm. like she just stopped responding to it and now if i hit that tone because like i've tapered it back again to like a a reasonable frequency now if i hit that tone like she stops in her tracks like oh shit i did like well
1: you you see it like um i don't know if you see it but like out in public and stuff people just be like yelling at their kids but like, oh they don't listen but right. Yeah, because there's like no consequences you yell at them all the time and like they've also
0: embarrassing them like you're you're giving right. them you're introducing like an, another layer of negative emotion like in shame you're making them right. feel so like they've less than
1: so and they've built awful. up enough defenses to like feel comfortable in their own skin to where oh yeah like, i mean yeah like you know they're gonna they want the attention
0: I mean we could go we could like being a uh I work in the in the public space like in all of the public spaces um it's it's I could go on at length about the the state of of 21st century parenting but we'll save that for a different podcast uh the last little piece of literature I wanted to at least throw at you haven't actually cracked this one but it's on my queue like I'm 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 actually waiting for a specific time period. I'll explain in a moment. Um, but that book is uh, killers of the flower moon by David Graham. Um, I have a copy of the book and I've been like back and forth, back and forth. Do I want to read it right now? Do I want to wait until the film comes out? I think I decided I'm going to wait until the film comes out. I want to see the film first and then I'll go back and watch. Cause I, was, to me, it's like the film is probably more important to me. Cause um, I just didn't, I just, I to me, it's like, Between books and in film, I find myself watching a lot more film than reading, uh, reading as much these days. Um, So like I want and and the film is I got a feeling that the film is on like a pedestal, whereas like I know the book is like very well um, received, but I want to I want to experience the film kind of like organically and then go back and like fill in the gaps with the literature after the fact. So. October 20th, Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese drops in theaters like uh, I don't know if we mentioned this on the airwaves on the last pod, but uh, Errol, I think we've basically all but agreed that uh, once that once that film hits the theaters, I think you and I are going to probably introduce a nice little special preview episode on it. Good with
1: yeah, kind of like the, the same thing we did with Oppenheimer, except a little more planned.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll just have something. We'll do like an hour and a half, uh, something along those lines, just to knock out our initial thoughts in the film. And then uh just like Oppenheimer, probably in the next year or so, we'll circle back to the film and talk about it a little bit more at length, uh, unless we hate it, unless it's like terrible. And I mean, it is three and a half hours long. And if it's, if it's bad, it's going to be bad for three and a half hours, which is like you know um
1: give it, give us something to talk about
0: yeah i mean there's plenty of t- plenty to talk about we'll still do the special preview show but if it's if it if it lays an egg um maybe we won't circle back to it later but if i I've i got like I I think it's going it. to be
1: pretty hard to uh, lay an egg with the with the reviews being like it's the best performance of leonardo's Like maybe it's just because the writers strike and they're like, we need to milk this for what we can. (laughs) Could be. We'll pay pay you to say whatever. Speaking of which, I
0: do believe that that's coming to an end here pretty soon. Their negotiations are getting, uh, they're getting towards the finish line. Hopefully.
1: Hmm. So,
0: I'll be able to sell my screenplay. Sorry, go ahead.
1: I said I'll be able to sell my screenplay. Oh, there it is.
0: Anyways, we are, uh, let's move into the uh, content of the day, shall we? That is the uh, intro. Um, we're talking today about Yukio Mishima, um, which it actually is funny enough. I'd, I actually didn't realize this until like way further in my research on him than I probably should have, being that it's actually on the front part of his Wikipedia. But um, his actual birth name uh, is Kimotake Hiro Hirooka. Hiro- 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 is that how it's pronounced, Errol? my hit that okay
1: uh that's how i would uh kimitake here hi- yeah yeah okay, okay. here hi- oh. no Hiraoka.
0: yeah so kimitake hirooka for the sake of the podcast i think we'll just refer to him as his um as his pen name which is uh yukio mishima or um mishima yukio depending on um i mean if you're way, japanese we, or not if you're japanese yeah and but as uh english americans we'll uh We'll just talk. Um, we'll refer to him as Yukio Mishima or just Mishima. Um, he's a Japanese author, poet, playwright, actor, model, Shintoist, nationalist, and founder of Tatanoke uh, Shield Society in Japan, um, a monumental figure in the world of Japanese literature. Um, and oh my- uh, go ahead, Aaron.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, in the literature, he was uh, considered for a, a Nobel Prize in uh, 1968.
0: Right. Yeah. Like so, um, yeah, his his career is like very well received, but yet his I would say that like not quite considered prolific. Um i don't believe his uh his actual bibliography is like particularly lengthy um but he did like i said he was a bit of a renaissance man i mean i guess he did write quite a few um pieces of literature largely but in terms of like full novels the ones that like were really monumental or had an impact on on the culture in like a very serious way were um i mean there was about what would you say errol four or five of them um probably confessions of a mask the uh what is considered his audio bi- autobiographical um uh, book and some somewhat of a fictionalization of his experience um he released that in 1949 and that was um i think to this day probably his most revered work would you agree with that is that, is that okay to say Nick? think
1: um so i think you may be right on that i've also heard that is mo yeah the most famous being the temple of the uh Local golden design. pavilion yeah um e- i mean it might not be a hard grasp but i guess uh the uh um sun and steel is pretty popular but it's pretty popular amongst uh like white supremacist groups and like other uh mm, right Well, when you think about it, though, like, his whole kind of spiel was building yourself up to a, like, heroic form and then legitimately, like, dying a hero's
0: death. Right, dying without So
1: a lot of people who are on that, like, kind of, like, terroristic or, like, you know, that idealistic, um, you know, they just want to, like, die for their country or die for an idea, it's kind of really easy to get behind and... So for that reason, I can definitely see how it's problematic. But the thing is, um, every all words can be twisted, and that is one of the reasons why I uh, I really like uh, Mister uh, Mishima because he did not like words. He preferred uh, he preferred the solar uh, words. Uh, words only can convey so much, kind of like a. Uh, the, the way i see it it's like a first person reference a second person reference like a or a third person per, or like perspective like if you read a book and someone was or if you read a book about an event that someone was like there that's like a first hand experience and that's probably a really good r- relaying or retelling of what happened there and it's definitely going to be a lot better than if you know some people like us just did research on it. But it's a whole another thing to like physically be there and actually like live and experience it. And he believed that uh, that's how you should treat life. You shouldn't sit around like reading or like you know discussing the ideas when you can actually go out there and make yourself better.
0: Yeah, he he reminds me this this like um, perspective that he had on experience was like very much reminiscent of the speech that uh, Robin Williams' character in uh, Goodwill Hunting gives on the park bench when he tells him like you know you think you think you know everything just because you read Oliver fucking Twist. Um, but like you don't know what, you don't know what it's like to watch your best friend die uh, die in your arms on the battlefield. You don't know what the you don't know what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. Um, like like life experience is more valuable than like your interpretations of someone else's um, descriptors or or writings about it. Um, so like I think I think what you're saying is actually. Uh, well it's also very ironic to come from coming from a a you know the a,
1: warrior poet
0: Nobel right, yeah. prize right like he and he and a, and a very very talented writer as um we'll get into like some of the pieces of writing we'll pick up some we'll drop a little bit of the like some quotations from some of his writing that, you know i've got a few things pulled up but like he, his writing is second to none i mean truly a a a unbelievable talent but um let's start off a little bit with his like his early years like how he kind of started off uh, it
1: was a uh, actually a second to a uh, yasunari kawabata he was the guy who got the uh, literature no that's who, prize. that's who beat him <laughs> out in the prize yeah. yeah um
0: but his so his early years basically were um i mean kind of kind of brutal just like you would expect in like early 20th century um japan um and obviously for many of the reasons his talents for writing were like basically started i i um read that he was it was basically around 12 when he did his first piece of true writing um obviously he had been developing a writing skill before then but um his he was sick as he wasn't even he barely lived when he was born like he 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 almost died as a as a newborn and then he almost died again when he was five or six he had like he had like vomited this like brown vial, and they thought that he was bas- They basically he was on uh, his deathbed as a child, like multiple times, and um miraculously survived both. Not tuberculosis. They, they it was kind of undiagnosed as to exactly what happened to him, but um was like they very thought sick. it
1: was something with his lungs, though, right? I believe that's why he wasn't. Yes,
0: uh, yeah, it was clearly yeah. a very a, like a lung disease of some kind, and it, but it wasn't tuber- tuberculosis because. Um, most people who got to he, he mentions, well, it's mentioned many times through many different, uh, sources that I use that like people around him were dropping dead of tuberculosis all the time. Um, but so he, I don't think he would have survived that. Um, if it was tuberculosis and being this, this being the case in this, his experience, um, like he kind of grew up like very pale and sickly. Uh, and and he was like kind of tormented by his classmates quite a bit from that. And I guess what I, also read was that his academic experience as a, as a child was actually pretty open minded. Um, it was very unusual. Um, it was like extremely unusual for him to for a Japanese academic setting to like um, open their curriculum to um, literature European literature or European or anything anything westernized. Um, but he, his experience was not that. He actually had access to Western literature which was like probably a, a major factor in his um, you know writing skill development mm-hmm. um, um, So uh,
1: yeah, the uh, that like uh, that sick pallorness when he started developing his writing skill um so I I believe uh, that's almost why he started because' you're, you're saying earlier like it's almost uh, it, it's it's kind of crazy how the person, who talked about like, uh, the person who was an author went from that to disliking words and just talking about like doing stuff. But I believe personally that that was built from the resentment of his childhood. He saw himself or like the educated as, you know, sickly. The reason you were sick is because you were a product of your environment. He would, he would stay up all night studying, reading books and, uh, in he secret. wasn't yeah and you like you know he was,
0: his father very very much disapproved i guess um while he was with his parents i should say that his father like very much disapproved of his interest in writing and literature
1: mm-hmm. and um so i believe it, it's almost like a it's like a perfect uh parallel to like people today um like myself i would just uh sit at home like stay up all night play video games like you know i'm you, you gain a little bit of weight you don't have the sunlight you look a little bit paler like you look like you been like like sitting around doing doing nothing as opposed to someone who like actually works or uh so the the reason or one of the things that like stood out for him is uh, one day he was walking and he's seen someone with one of those shinto shrines like carrying it on his back mm-hmm. he's like oh my god that's like a huge burden and like the guy just looked tan from like being out there in the sun and like strong from carrying the shrine all the time right? and then he was like this man's actually out here like looking at the beautiful blue sky like he is here living life he's and then um Mishima was like when I was in my books and like doing all the reading and writing he's like I would just try to describe this beautiful sky but I wasn't actually here like experiencing it and he's like there's no way any of those words could convey the actual beauty of life the most that words can do is uh, corrupt the beauty
0: right because it distorts the actual image of so it's like you you have two options you can either like use you can use imaginative descriptors to describe um or to write about uh something visual or you can you can be inspired by something visual um and like let that inspiration kind of blossom within you to write about what you're seeing and um, I feel like, I feel like that's true for a lot of artists in a lot of different ways. Like it's like, I just, I think this guy just absolutely nailed it with this specific perspective. We'll, we'll get into some of the other perspectives as we move along through his story. But like, um, that, that perspective is, I think like super valuable and it's also really, really valuable now in this century, in the 21st century with like the, uh, you know, the, obviously the uptick in screen time and screen use and, um, being that uh, we live in a pretty distracted society now with like the um, inability to kind of like stop and look around. Um, so I think like this message is great. And I do think that I think that helped along his writing. I think that's why he became such a, such an amazing writer. Um, but anyway, so one of the, one of the parts of his story that's like pretty important. I don't want us to, I don't want to skip over it is that he actually does live with his grandmother for a while. Right. Like, so like, um, he's like his early childhood is spent with his grandmother who I, I would, um, I don't want to say that she was a poor influence, but like, it seemed as though she had a very, very uh, strict um and constrained set of disciplines that she wanted him to uphold while living with her. And this, this very much included, like she did not allow him to spend time with like boys. Like it was basically all, uh females and and like dressing up and dolls and like very like feministic basically she 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 kept him uh you know away from anything masculine oh so like he
1: because i'd like to um i'd like to describe him in my mind as like a warrior poet it's almost like he was like a uh like grew up not like grew up because it wasn't like his whole childhood and i'm just learning about this but it has uh it, it reminds me of the geisha Oh, right, right. Where they were just supposed to be beautiful and know stuff. Mm -hmm. Like that's all their job, just to like know stuff and, uh, you know, be, uh, be cultured and also uh, just yeah be like graceful. So
0: yeah, it sounds to me though that he was like actually kind of resentful of this because um, while it did give him time to, it gave him a lot of time to like continue reading about like mythology and um, you know, this is like more so his early childhood. Like, I think that he it kind of rounded him out in some ways, but I also think that he like lashed out about this later because he couldn't well, really that, develop, um, uh, like masculine social experience that he probably would have benefited from at that age. I um, don't,
1: I don't think it's a reach at all to assume that it's one of the reasons why he's, uh, detested, uh, like literature so much. Like the actual like the why he had that uh change of heart where he's like uh you know, you can only talk about so much, but the only thing you can really do is like change your body. Right. Yeah. Um or like, you know, change yourself. So I think uh I I think that there's a bunch of stuff that happened. Uh you could be uh the childhood uh I'm kind of a jerk so part of me just wants to be like oh he is mad that he got second place and he's like I bet I could beat his ass though I bet he's <laughs> cool I bet he can't do
0: that. <laughs> but he can't curl his waist bro. Right? <laughs> I bet he can't be jacked. Yeah oh yeah he gets jacked he definitely gets jacked I mean that's that's definitely a part of the story too but well,
1: um without sidetracking too much like
0: sure what
1: for. a uh, what an absolute uh like powerhouse he was Author, poet, playwright, actor, model,
0: renaissance man,
1: yeah, and had a, a militia military group like <laughs> yeah. that. Is that's a lot of stuff,
0: yeah. I mean, he did, yeah, I mean, he really did. And like, I don't know, a lot of these experiences he did all this before he was 45, which will obviously, Ooh,
1: and he was, um, he was a he almost was a, a kamikaze pilot.
0: Yeah, he got he dodged that, right? So that's like kind of the next the next segment of like his uh his backstory is that like so I think it was uh when was it? It was he was like 18, 19, somewhere in that in the late teens, and um he's called like he gets that. So like the it was described in the source I read that like he when you were called upon to be a kamikaze, you would get a pamphlet, you would get a notification in the mail, and typically you had two different. Uh, two different types of notifications. You would get like a normal one that was on white paper and it would indicate that you've been drafted into the Imperial army and you're going to war. You're going to go, um, you're going to go defend the the oceanic fronts of Japan. Right. And then it, you, on the other side of the coin, you would get a notification in red. And that indicated if you got that red notification, that meant that you had been drafted into the Kamikaze um, position with the with the Imperial Army and now you, you're basically you get that red you get that red flag in your in your mailbox and that is a death sentence. Um, um not for him though.
1: Right. Uh, but like what a what a thing to like so it's a it's it's um I've I've heard it's a split bag. Uh while you do have uh the overall like tradition of um like sacrificing for the greater good and like doing what you can, like uh, to bring honor upon your family. And being a kamikaze pilot was seen as like one of the most honorable sacrifices that you could make, if not like the most at the time. Cause like right. they're just like, how brave are you just to know you're gonna die? Like that is like, you know, there it's so when you think about it, it's kind of like, um, a what, uh, the uh, uh, seppuku. Like they're already killing themselves for like if they disgrace themselves, like you could do this and bring honor like all in like one time. So it's like there's almost no other culture I think that could like whip that together other than I guess uh now there's religions and stuff. But there's well, not I don't think there's like a nation that could like
0: Well, let's talk about it a little bit. I mean, what are your thoughts on because for me it's like it's 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 easy to answer this question, but I'll I'll ask you because you might have a little bit more um, of a nuanced perspective on it like you find the honor the honor killings or the honor suicides of like the, the suicide culture of japan which like in some degree still persists today in like a, a different way but it's we can get into that into the, how it's different um you know momentarily but like i want to know what you think because for me i'll explain what i think and then i want to hear what you think like mm-hmm. the suicide culture of japan to me is like it's like um while i find it to be like. I, I see the honor in it, and I it's like because it's the deepest level sacrifice that you can imagine is to like give your own life to, for your for your country, um for your emperor for the emperor typically, um and for your family like this is like, I personally find it to be morally bereft like I don't I don't actually see any moral um or ethical value there um and I know that people. It's it's not really something that's been like um, I don't think researched heavily enough by like Western um, science or Western psychology. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's terrible. Like I just think it's ter- I feel awful that this is a part of their. It, it, while it does two things, I think that the suicide culture is very much tied to the honor culture of the Far East. Oh, uh, so it produces- you remember how
1: you remember how we? Oh, sorry to cut you off. Like, um, oh, go ahead. Like you said, like it's tied into the honor. And stuff like that. So, like, there is like a deeper meaning. You remember how we were talking earlier innocuously enough about like raising your kids, right? Imagine if that's just something on the back burner. Like, if I do something bad enough, or if I disgrace my family bad enough, like the best at one point, like the best thing I could do in Japan was just to totally kill myself um so like when you're like when you're raising like when you're raising kids and stuff like you're just like oh no don't do that like you have to kill yourself like you know what i mean like it's probably like a little more nuanced but like that is a like it's a it's a societal construct and a pressure that is um
0: it produces like highly 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 successful and highly ambitious in uh, it produces warriors which is like i i i it's undeniable that it that that type of like pressure cooker of a culture and that type of like inculcation of um i mean it's fear in a lot of ways but it's also just like this very intense level of and depth of honor um produces like you know it's going to produce a society that in a lot of ways is more disciplined is more focused on um ambitious ambitions and on um, you know, production and development and like probably living in a moral way while still alive. However, like it makes me wonder, like, so like there, there's a concept of like, um, I actually just heard this in this, uh, Arthur Brooks podcast, but it's like, so it kind of fits nicely here. But like the question, like the, the question that was asked in the podcast, was simply like, would you rather your, your child be a, um, psychopathic genius or would you rather them be like moderately or or reasonably intelligent but like but happy and enjoy their time alive? And like I think you if you apply that to this like logic, not to say that like Japanese people are typically like psychopathic geniuses, that's not what I mean to say. I just mean I just mean that you you wonder if like while they are ambitious and while they are they have like a moral standard that's typically a bit higher and they have um they're you know, nationalism is a will be a big topic of today's podcast in relation to Yukio Mishima. Um, you, it makes you wonder if like that nationalism comes at a cost of, of you know, probably a lot of psychological trauma and unhappiness in uh, within the Japanese culture, I would think.
1: So I would I would have to agree. I don't think there's a lot of other cultures that have so much of like a pressure cooker going on. I agree to where. Everyone is held to such a high standard because the thing it's um it's almost they're almost like the true embodiment of like you're only as strong as your weakest link. Um they pretty much just assume that everyone in your day-to-day business is going to like perform their jobs like at a hundred percent because that is what is expected of them. And that is like you're saying, like um when it comes to like happiness and stuff. I believe like they're just kind of like a lot of like the Buddhist like mindsets and stuff. It's like, just live in the day. Like you will be happy if you perform your task, your daily toil. It's Um, not
0: that it's almost like, like there is. um, That's what I mean is like, I actually think that like, you can't tie, you can't tie fulfillment and honor and things that are considered like morality or of, of moral value. You can't tie them to production or success. I think that like, As it's, I mean, this has been proven on a scientific level or neurological level. Like, you don't get to experience the, like, the whatever it is, the endorphin or the dopaminergic experience of happiness, whatever that, whatever that neurochemical chemistry is, you don't get to experience that without, like, without negative emotion. Like, one does not exist without the other. And the Buddhists know that.
1: It's the yin and yang, it's the, um, the Ouroboros.
0: Right right. so like this and whatever, I, I'm giving a very rudimentary and like very ignorant way of describing Japanese culture. I'm sure that there are aspects of it that are like extremely fulfilling and like do reach for happiness in a more, but this aspect, I'm just I'm just speaking upon this aspect of Japanese culture, which was very much endorsed by Yukio Mishima um, on and off throughout his uh, professional career, his personal life, um you know and, and especially his his relationship with emperor uh hirohito so um you know I just I just feel like it's important to point out that like while there is some like a deep level of to be learned from an individual like Mishima because he had he had perspectives and worldviews that were like um unique and um spe- specifically unique to Japanese culture um I don't know I just think there's there's an aspect to it that could be questioned um so
1: we you also gotta consider the time where he was raised like he was he got that red letter at one for two seconds he's like i'm going to die for my country like that was set in his mind
0: but and you thought that like if you you would think that like especially given the way his story shook out that he would be like that would be something um that he would look forward to or that he was like proud of. But like what I had, what I had read was that when, so he we will move this. I'm just going to push the story along. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Errol. I just want to put, we'll circle back to like, as soon as I'm, I'm done describing what happens here, but I just want to fill the listeners in. So when he gets um to his, when he reaches the Imperial Japanese army, he, he, um, he actually is sent home. So he's got a cold, right. And they ask him like, like, he's kind of sick And the medical when they're doing like a medical examination, they want to find out like they don't want people with tuberculosis there um, because that's running rampant through basically the whole world at this time. And for basically hundreds of years prior, but he basically says like um, he writes in confessions of a mask that he fails the exam. So he only has a cold and he's, you know, he's pale. He's sick. He's sweating. He's got the cold sweats. He's, he's just got a cold. He doesn't have tuberculosis, but he lets the medical examiners believe that he has tuberculosis and they send him home. And he's, and he describes that, that, that feeling of not of being unfit for duty as something he was, um, he was happy about at the time. And then he felt like a tremendous amount of shame and guilt um for like years and years about feeling not about being sent home. I mean part of partially that, but also that he, he was happy to and he lied to go home. So like that guilt that he um that guilt and shame would be manifested in his like bodybuilding and his like um right.
1: He just looked blood gross blood. enough on a bad day to where the doctors thought he was had a
0: tuberculosis. Like a,
1: yeah, had like a disease.
0: And he didn't, and he let them think that like, and that was something that he wrote about as being like one of the more like regretful moments of his life. And it really shaped his worldview going forward because he felt as though he let his country down um, and he let the emperor down by not serving. Um, So he, he basically, um, it said that he, uh, he, well, he anticipated, he did anticipate leaving and he was, he appeared happy to, to go and, you know, become a kamikaze um, fighter. But when he was given the opportunity to back out, he did, he let them think he had tuberculosis and it was a major regret in his, uh, in his early days.
1: Um, it's actually a perfect, uh, circle back though, because, um, one of the only, like with the, uh, cause I believe you're talking about like, uh, how how could they justify like suicide or like whether it's uh, the ritualistic suicide or like the kamikaze. Um, I believe it's a little bit of one hand feeding the other um, with them having the history of both like the samurai and the Bushido code as well as the, uh, the sacrifice and people like sacrificing themselves for doing something like dishonorable or like, you know, the, the honor code in general. Um the Japanese were really good at uh using um using that code of Bushido and revamping it to the new age. Um they were fighting like a they had an impossible task and they knew that they weren't gonna be able to beat. Uh, you know that impossible task if they were willing to throw literally everything at it including their lives um, when it comes to uh, a kamikaze drone so I don't want to give it
0: such a like a poor analogy. But I'm going to anyways. (laughs) Let's hear it. I like it. I like where you're going with this. Let's hear it. Let's get give me the worst one we got.
1: Yeah. So it's not not exactly the same. We're not because we're on one end. We're talking about human life. On the other, we're just talking about a drone. But you've seen, you've had to have seen recently how the Ukrainians are just using cardboard drones Mm -hmm. to like blow up like everything, like from like the naval. Uh, the Russians like naval stuff to uh, like you know just important uh, like
0: areas, yeah. Like precision strikes in like very vitally militaristically vital, um, right. With um, with calculated loss
1: of we're going to use this cardboard and like the time and then get that done. It's right. just they didn't the they did not have the technology at that time. They're like, what we can do is send people there with explosives and then have them confirm like hits on target. Cause it is like, you know, it's the guided is a guided missile. You were, it was for lack of a better word. They actually, um, the United States uh, thought about training pigeons to be guided missiles.
0: Yeah, no, I, we've talked about that before. Yeah. Yeah. But I
1: mean, yeah, so it was just like a tough whole... time.
0: It, it basically it's a very difficult time to be, so, like...
1: but, So when you think, like, they were considering the cost of the life plus the cost, and actually, so they didn't even start doing the kawakazis till the end of the war because what would happen is, same thing with Germany, um, all the really good pilots would go back out, and then you could only go out for so long um, before you didn't come back, and then they didn't have the wherewithal, they didn't have the planes or the people to train the pilots But what they could do is they could train them to get the plane up in the air, and fly it into a direction. So at one point they're legitimately like training people on like wooden stokes. Like here's your here's your throttle, here's the gauge. It's gonna go like that because it didn't matter. You weren't like landing it. Like so you just needed to know how to. You just needed to know how to get it started and get it up and then like get just from there, feel it around, and then just. So that's like it's um. I don't. I will never say it's a good idea, but I can absolutely see where they were coming from. Like they as, were as uh, a
0: militaristic uh, tactic.
1: And there was one point before, like the nukes, where the Japanese people were willing to fight tooth the nail. It, the saying was like a, um, like a million lives for or a million for one or something like that. And it's like a million lives for like one nation. And it was like they, they, you're gonna have to kill everyone in Japan to beat Japan um that's why that one guy who was on the island or they, they found him it was like a whole bunch of years after the war
0: yeah he still thought the war was maintained like that yeah was still going on right
1: yeah he well, thought I the war that. was still going on and they're like no it's over and he's like no it's not and he's like oh well like let like, you talk to Japan the war's over and he's like no now you're definitely lying because if the war was over either Japan would not nah, or Japan wouldn't exist he's like so they brought him like the newspapers and then he's like yeah, yeah. You know, anyone could just write stuff.
0: <laughs> you can't convince this they guy had to. Either. They had
1: to get the guys. They had to get the guys. Uh, lieutenant, who was like, yeah, a salesman or something. He was like something.
0: <laughs> he's also like hella old too. He's like fucking. Right. He's like his eighty nine year old man. He's like imagine that. A imagine now, but this is the guy.
1: Imagine that door knock too. They're like, yeah, like you know, Benny's still in the woods. He's, <laughs> he's still
0: like in the what? fucking bush man. We can't get him out. You're like who? <laughs>
1: no way. No. You're like yeah, you got it. He's not coming out unless you give him orders. You're the commander. And they're like, you're like, no, nah, I gotta see this. I'm like, I'm going.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, it was a wild time. I couldn't actually. I was really looking. So like, obviously, there's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of content on like his reaction to the, like the uh, the Japanese surrender in 1945. Like, um, obviously he was like distraught and like completely in disbelief of it, um, when it happened, but I could not, I couldn't really find his, I wanted to find a reaction that maybe a public reaction or what he said about the nuclear strikes. Um, but I, I really couldn't find any, any like dialogue from him on those, which is like kind of disappointing. I was really hoping to find something that he might've said about it because, um, You know, it's such a a monumental moment in the the history of the world. You would want to hear from like one of the uh, who would go on to become one of the more famous Japanese people in the next 10, 20 years after the war. Um, It would have been nice to hear hear what he had to say about it and how it affected him and maybe his family. But um, alas, there was nothing much to be found there on that front um let's move let's move it forward let's go to post let's get like into the post-war era of his uh experience so like obviously he doesn't serve he goes home um you know with before even before becoming kamikaze he kind of avoids that uh heroic death but um i believe the first thing he writes um when he's when he's like basically when the war is officially over um is like what is it? I'm sorry. I want to pull it up here. I want to find out for sure exactly what the first thing While is.
1: While you do that, I found something. Let's get an essay established um, on the 11th of August, 1967, The well-known writer, Yukio um, Mishima, surprisingly yielded a confession about why he never mentioned the trauma that the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had exerted on his psyche. And if we... And if we are to take his statement literally, his liter- his literature as well, the essay is titled Hiroshima Inside of Me, uh Watashi no Naka no Hiroshima. In it, um, Mishima describes the extent of the moral and psychic trauma that uh yeah, psychic trauma that uh this event ext- extolled on him as a youngster. The dead body of the juvenile uh The dead body of the juvenile trauma inflicted by this event is perhaps exhumed here by a mature Mishima as a harbinger of what would be his intellectual legacy in terms of poetics. It is undeniable that in his novels, Mishima fostered or at least indirectly provided a model of the revision of the Kokutai National national body uh wartime rhetoric into into the private obsession with the individual body that characterized much of post-war literature's involvement with these uh salacious and the carnal uh the transformation of the traumas related to the war and the nuclear bombing can be related to a a collective memory that post-war writers have upon or that have already uh, touched upon uh it's pretty much um he didn't really have anything else to say. Okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's good. I'm Errol. I'm going to have you, uh, I'm going to have you send that to me and, and uh, for our listeners, I want to post that to our, uh, to our Twitter page. So that's going to be available. Cause I actually, I'm glad you found that cause I actually would like to read a little bit more in in depth about that. um, Cause that's a, that's, that's super interesting. Because I want to, I want to know deeply what he, especially man, with that title like Hiroshima, Hiroshima inside of me, like that yeah. is just like I mean, because basically the only thing that I could ever find or 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 listen to, for that matter, even in po- in the formal podcast, is basically his just reaction to it. wasn't so much that he spoke about the he didn't like like the article says he doesn't really he maintained a bit of silence about the nuclear strikes, but he definitely had had some like open. Um, distaste for the surrendering, um, by the, uh, by the emperor. Um, but it didn't, it didn't dissuade him. Like he, he maintained, I mean, obviously he has, so like Japan after, you know, in, in the post war starts, begins to like, um, democratize, right? Cause like now, now you're, they've been, they're occupied by, by US military forces and, yeah, and we
1: forced them to open up.
0: Yeah. And they basically are kind of forced into this. Um, but so he like, you know, obviously he has his qualms about this and it seems as though that like his nationalism runs pretty deep. He he strikes me as a bit of a like politically confused or alienated person. I don't think that like his, his politics were appeared more strong than I actually think they were. Um, I,
1: yes, I, it's almost like he just wanted to stand for something, but like his, his beliefs were almost cemented in his like body alone. And so I don't, I don't want to like speak for him or anything because I haven't even, I'm saying this, and I haven't even like read one of his books like front to back. But um, right.
0: They're by, uh, by the way, likewise. You're talking, we're doing a biography on a gentleman whose literature we haven't actually um digested, but like, um, need, needless to say, that's like his story is will per, will peak will peak our interest and hopefully listeners' interest to actually crack a few of his books open going forward.
1: Right, right. That's the whole point of this That's, this right. spiel, but um, but yeah, like it, it almost it almost feels to me like he he had the game plan. He did everything. Um, he like honed his body, and then he was just like, you know, now it's time. Yeah, he's like now it's time to do that hero's death.
0: Yeah, and I think that like, well, it's like he he the sword becomes the pen in this, like in his life. Right. Like, cause that, cause he just starts writing vigorously after the war. Like it, it really is kind of crazy how quickly he starts picking it up. And I think it's just based on like, he started doing a lot of traveling. Like he, I think he came to America a couple of times, saw Los Angeles and New York and New York city, which I think at the time he admitted that like New York, he thought that New York city was like a hundred years ahead of Tokyo. Um, when he visited there in like the, the late forties or early fifties, um, but like, so his first novel was actually Thieves, which was a story about two young members of the aristocracy drawn towards suicide. Um, once again, like you're, you guys, folks listening, like this is going to be a heavy theme. Um, Mishima has like this true obsession with like beauty and death and how they intersect. Um, and like that's that's. Mostly exemplified in basically all of his novels, but certainly most in his second piece of writing, which was semi-autobiographical, and that is Confessions of a Mask, um, where he basically publicly um, outs himself as a homosexual. Right? I mean, that's that's basically what the book indicates. Like the story is is a, essentially told about him, but is from the perspective of a homosexual who is like who's hiding from society or hiding oh. his his sexuality from society so like i mean he basically publicly outs himself which um at the time people didn't realize cuz they didn't realize the book was autobiographical but like in hindsight it becomes very clear that it was and at the time he was basically um there were whispers and then he he actually marries someone to like kind of shush them down shush down the whispers of of his um homosexuality getting out um and he didn't want that to be public at the time so he ends up he ends up like marrying a 19 year old to just like um to kind of quiet down the the gossip
1: well so i didn't i didn't know that what's that um, which part uh, the uh i didn't know anything about the uh, about that second book you're talking about
0: thieves or confessions of a mask
1: confessions of a mask
0: yeah. So like, it's actually, it's the account of a young homosexual man. I mean, it's, it's, um, but it's, it's from the perspective of a, of a, the protagonist, but, le, but like, it's all, I mean, the whole book is obviously about his struggles. Right. But it, like right. I said, it's not a public at the time. It didn't, it wasn't launched as a autobiographical where like the, the, the character in the book is like acting as a stand in at the time. It wasn't known that, but in hindsight, I think it would it it came to be known that like once pe- once people knew more about him it it was very clear that the book was was well, somewhat about him or most a lot of
1: a lot of the stuff that he's like done or like um a lot of the stuff uh, that he's done or uh like a really like stood behind i guess or like was like a uh proprietor for not a lot of the stuff but uh some of the things you could argue do have a sort of undertone of that of of that of little uh they do sort of have that undertone of homo-erotic, yeah homoeroticism right um so you know you have the uh, perfecting of the body and like you know just making yourself peak form like uh he uh he thought like uh the best you or the best you could do is by is uh craft your own self up in a in a greek god image uh but that's a it's a masculine hero is what he was saying was like perfection also uh when he went to greece
0: uh loved it he was like obsessed with like greek philosophy
1: like yeah not just saying like oh we went to greece so that you know (laughs) <laughs> you know, they're they're they were pretty gay.
2: But
1: no, but the uh the statues and stuff that he fell in love with, um they are uh you know uh heroic, strong masculine naked figures. Um but uh the the meaning behind them though, uh is almost uh is almost what he like lived. Like he almost took took that he took the art that he saw in front of him that he liked and he chose to sculpt himself. Uh And so like the, there's also like a reason why they made those statues, like everything, you know, it's, it's art and like, yeah, they just made like a perfect diorama of someone and it just looks muscular, but everything has a meaning. You, uh, your head is like your reason. And, um, you always see them with like such stoic faces and that's because uh in those in those heroic depictions in those statues they uh they have harmony of reason harmony of the soul their chests they always have big chests which is where your emotion is held right yeah or your thumos your uh your like kutspa your actual like uh the your your passion almost but not to be confused with uh your desire which is in your belly or your appetite and like which is your genitals so that's why these statues were drawn with uh the stoic face for the showing how reasonable they are and how they like weren't like unbalanced like they were just focused Mm -hmm. Uh, the big chest because they had big emotions and they had small genitals because in the because they had a small appetite uh they could control mm. their desire it wasn't the it wasn't the main cell point of them it wasn't there they weren't focused on the genitalia okay yeah so that's why have you ever thought that
0: like not yeah, to be I like, definitely thought that I mean, not I'm to, like not, to like, not to be like
1: not to be like oh fucking you know, swinging over here but I'm like yo look at that little dick
0: yeah, I mean – well, I always thought that it was intentional, but I just didn't – I also – part of me also just kind of assumed that maybe like – I don't know, that like maybe – Maybe you're, to,
1: you're just swinging. Maybe you're just like you know that's everything. Well, I just thought that
0: – I, I was under the impression that maybe like we've like evolved and that's – and they were just – I don't know, like because they're just – they're depictions of older – uh, male humans that like their genitalia just do just was smaller back then. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't, I don't know. To be honest, it's again, just become not a, a m- whole, it's just be- not, not a whole lot of ponderment upon the genitalia of uh, Greek gods and Greek statues. It's just become
1: more like uh, the desired trait. So everyone just doesn't have like, you know, but that's no, that's what it was. Is there, you know, there's varying sizes of genitalia.
0: I'm sure it's intentional and there's probably some. It's just like, well, it's just like we said in the Silence podcast, um, our previous podcast um, out on Apple podcast, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, check it out. Um, as we mentioned in that, it's just like people, because people were so much more connected to like their human experience. Um, much more than we are now it's just it just feels like people are were just they could think more deeply and with such more there was a lot more depth to the way that people approached um the thinking process or the philosophizing of, of things people spent time with these with they spent time with moments they spent spent time with uh, nature they spent time with um with ideas they, they would like, so
1: what a uh, what Socrates said uh in like a uh, you know in that like feeling and stuff he said uh he said like if you're a virtuous or uh, the virtuous person harmonizes these three groups of himself like you know your reason your emotion your desire and uh you will uh you will like use those uh use those three notes like a uh like a musical scale like yeah. high low and the, like the middle
0: the harmon- so is synchronized
1: Right. So if you, like you were saying, like, it seemed like these people were a lot more in tune with themselves. Like, if you, they're more willing to, like, you know, live the day-to-day, be in their emotions, control their desires, and also, uh, like, you know, work on their, like, Thumos, their emotion, and their physical. So it's almost, uh, that, it's why back in the day that that was seen as like the most heroic thing that you could possibly do because there really was nothing much more you know what i mean and it kind of i like to think it still does ring true
0: yeah yeah i think that's i mean in, in part for sure um yeah so on that note uh errol what do you think we take a short break let's take a quick break when, when we come back um we what I want to do is I want to I want to bounce I want bounce back to uh, some of the literature. I want to give our listeners um, a little let's do a little bit of sampling of the writing. So I want people to kind of get a get an idea of just the talent the talent of writer that uh, Mishima was. So uh, let's take a short break. We'll be right back with you guys in just a few minutes. when we get back, we'll discuss and quote um, a few pieces of writing from Yukio Mishima. We'll be right. Back. Welcome back, folks. We're back with Yukio Mishima um, as the topic for our, our podcast today for the biography series. Uh, so we kind of course through most of his, uh, you know, his experience leading into the uh, into and a little bit after World War II. Uh, but before we get into the literature itself or any part of the literature, I thought Errol and I would just read off a couple of excerpts or quotes. From his uh, from his writing, um, just to just to give folks an idea of like the quality of writer he is and the poetry in which he um, you know happened to compile across his career. So, um, Errol, why don't you kick us off? Give us something. Give us an excerpt or a quote that you really found um, you know uh, profound.
1: Um, so I took a cursory glance through some mm-hmm. and. Um, I really like, uh, like I said, I didn't read through the mask, but I should have figured that this quote was from, (laughs) or from the, uh, uh, from the, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, He goes, uh, a man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. And I think that's, um, I think that's like, I think that's holds a lot of truth. Like, uh, people don't like to be vulnerable, but if you you know look at uh, online get people I was thinking of the nom- same thing yeah give them the anonymity 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 yeah, yeah. get them uh, that sauce and then they're you know say whatever you want who cares
0: yeah it's true and it's like well it's it's the protection of identity so like um you know but it's interesting yeah they speak to, they speak in in truths yeah and and with like un, unearned bravery at the same time uh, they're willing to say things that they think are true that they might not say otherwise, but they also are willing to say things that are blatantly untrue. So it's like this like double edged sword, um, which actually makes for the online communication um to be quite destructive. Um, which as we've we've seen this online where like the degradation of truth speaking is like happening before our eyes. Um mm. But yeah, no that's a beautiful quote. Let me I'm going to drop one. This was this was from the Temple of the Golden Pavilion. This was the one that like kind of stood out to me and I think it's one of the more well-known ones for him. Um, quote, "What transforms this world is knowledge." Do you, do you see what I mean? Nothing else can change anything in this world. Knowledge alone is capable of transforming the world while at the same time, leaving it as exactly as it is. When you look at the world with knowledge, you realize the things are, uh, the things are unchangeable and at the same time are constantly being transformed. It's like this So end quote. Um, so it's like this like confliction it's a confliction, but it's also like a paradoxical writing. Um, but i think that his like value in in knowing things in like ensuring that he is like informed and educated and um i mean i think the, i think he found the value in books really early in life and he i think in this quote um i think he's like grappling a bit with like knowing that the value of knowledge is is sturdy and stable and reliable but also knowing that the that the lack of knowledge can um not so much that the lack of knowledge can like leaves things a bit transfixed but like also that like sometimes things should remain the same and sometimes they should be they should evolve and either way the making that choice is best made with knowledge with knowing
1: yeah i like to um i like to i, I like to take that as a uh it's like a, it's like a very like Buddhist take, and also like kind of what he stood for, and how he didn't necessarily like, he didn't like words. Like he, he understood that you need to have knowledge to understand like deeper meaning in things, but to a degree, um, while things are unchangeable, like you can describe something or like something that happened, they're at the same time constantly being transformed. Right. So the uh, if you go to describe something, then it's not going to be the same thing that you've described because it's, it always changes. Like there's the the best thing you can do is acquire knowledge so you can appreciate stuff as it happens.
0: Right. And everyone, everyone kind of processes knowledge differently too. Like everybody has like the human experience that's unique to them and how they process information is always like, it varies. It's, it's all perceptive. I mean, some, but yet some things can only be perceived one or two ways, or I guess nothing can really truly be, you know, perceived only in one way, but like the truth, the truth within itself is the truth. And, um, I think he just had a very like deep sense of wonder, you know, like, uh, he had like, uh, I think he was like a deeply curious person, but also, I don't know, like, I think had, due to the had convictions t- too.
1: I think, uh, it was almost like The angst was misplaced because the time he grew up in.
0: Yeah, I I think that's probably probably entrenched in some truth. Um, Let me read something from Confessions of a Mask because I do want to I think that I, I think in my opinion, that's his most important piece just because it's about him. Um, so I think it was the most personal. I know that he had like a magnum opus that was like a tetralogy of books, um, the sea of fertility, which was like four different like major books. And that was kind of how he ended his life with, with with those books. That's how his like career. He wrote them at the tail end of his life. Um, and to, to him, he would probably say that, that, that sea of fertility is like the most important, but for me, in my perspective, it's like the most important thing he ever did for like his story is confessions of a mask. So this is from confessions of a mask quote, what I wanted was to die among strangers, untroubled beneath a cloudless sky. And yet my desire differed from the sentiments of that ancient Greek who wanted to die under the brilliant sun. What I wanted was some natural spontaneous suicide. I wanted a death like that of a, like that of a Fox, not yell, not yet well-versed in cunning that walks carelessly along a mountain path and is shot by a hunter because of its own stupidity, which is like, oh my God, it's heartbreaking. He's, he's like, his fascination with death is just so clear and, and like, what like is, he wanted to die, but like he wanted to die what by a, suicide. What, but-
1: a, what a stark difference between like him and uh, runaway horses and like his feeling towards the end of his life where um, in runaway horses, he's like a per- or perfect uh, purity as possible. If you turn your life into a line of poetry written uh, with a splash of blood. Like he he went from like man I just want to be taken outside like old Yeller don't even know what's going on to like I need to die, and go to Valhalla. <laughs> yeah. I need to yeah. die a hero's death.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, well, he's almost like it's almost like the the quote that the quote that I read from Confessions like about the you know the the mountain path is shot by a hunter. It's almost like he was like praying for a mercy suicide, like a mercy killing suicide, like. Because I think he maybe he was in like when he was younger, he was in more pain, you know. Um, but maybe he wasn't so convicted about his like suicidal suicidal ideation. Um, but definitely you're right. At the tor- at the tail end of his life, like you know what it was too is I think he developed like a bit of um, and this is just my perspective per- perception on it, but um, I think he developed a bit of a more heartbreak from the um I think he, at the same time, is developing like a more nationalism within him and a nationalistic, like ego about Japanese culture and about where the country was. I think he was all. I think he grew more and more heartbroken by like the, the abandonment of uh, the emperor. Like, because at one point, I believe the emperor Hirohito like denounces his, his, um, his his like status as a god and and like publicly states himself as being like a mortal man. Um, I
1: think that was like
0: the tipping point.
1: I think that was one of the craziest uh, uh, things that they put in that treaty. Like they're like, oh, you thought you're going to get away with that? No. Nope. like, What do you mean that's on the paper? Like, yep, you got to say it.
0: Whether you believe it or not. Right.
1: Right. Because well, that, like, that is like it, it was like the way of life there. Like just to like go in and just be like, yep, you got to like that's, that's, a tough pill to swallow on both, not I mean on both sides, both the emperor and the people there.
0: Yeah, but it took him like it took him thirty years, um, and we'll we'll push it along. Like, like he becomes a militaristic figure. Like in and he like he develops, um, he develops like I think he attempts multiple different rebellions and uh, uh, coup attempts. Um, to overthrow the government Cause I think he's just disgusted at this point with um, the emperor and his re- renunciation of like a God of God status. And um, like this, this action step towards like, like first like growing more and more nationalistic, but then also like he gets, people are listening to him. So like, he's, he's actually, um, <clears throat> he, he actually like gets some training under the uh, ground self-defense force. Right. And, um, and he like soldiers start listening to him and he starts like, like he's a deep right wing figure. And this is not like a Western perspective of right wing. This is just like nationalism, deep nationalism. And he wants, he wants Imperial Japan back um, post-World War II. Right. And like, this is very clear and he is not yeah. happy with the um, occupation of the United States in Japan, like, and definitely wants it to end. Um Errol, why don't you? I'll let you. Uh, this was your baby, so I want you to um <clears throat> go ahead and just tell. Tell what happened. Let's talk about the the coup, the final coup, uh, in November of nineteen
1: seventy. Um, yeah. Uh, so a lot of stuff was just like a. I don't want to say like a lot of stuff was coming uh to a head, but I feel like. So okay big a big um be, yeah before like right before we get into this I feel like a uh, uh, an important thing to uh circle back to is his whole motif in um what or the best thing you can do is build your body up heroically into like a the best physique that you can cultivate so you can do something heroic so,
0: right you shouldn't skip over that you're right that's really well
1: well no it's a it's a it's just a perfect like um like it'll go right into it so right that is that is how he felt like deep down like he wanted to cultivate his body so he can um be in perfect physical form so he could do something heroic and die a hero's death uh he says he says something and i'm just paraphrasing that there's a there's no longer like a you can't die like a heroic death anymore or something like that so here's here's the uh while that's a pretty good message like not like if you take it to heart um but like you know just build yourself up so if something happens you can sacrifice yourself if you believe that wholeheartedly the problem with that is the body deteriorates you get Mm -hmm. worse over time right so you can only Hold your body up to that perfect physique for so long before you're not able to lift as much as you can or before you're uh, not able to look as good as you were able to. So if you believe that wholeheartedly, there is going to be a, a high watermark, a precipice where you need to act or it is all downhill and you miss your opportunity for that, you know, right for that actual heroic moment when you are at the pinnacle of your life and you do the pinnacle of your 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 reason to be here. Um that's the reason why they had all those statues depicting all that stuff. They were just like heroic and in are it's either it's always either after triumph or something like that, like a lot of those things it's like uh after Medusa was beheaded and like stuff like that, all those statues it's always like after heroic feats or like during um but yeah, I think that was his downfall is that he uh just believed too heavily in the idea that he was preaching. And that's, here's the thing. That's not usually something to, uh, that's not usually a uh, bad thing. Oh yeah.
0: Like, like we were saying, like he had, like he may have been like morally or politically like conflicted through most of his life, but it seems like the later, as he started to like physically transform, so did his like convictions. Um, they started to like certify and become a bit more, um, a bit more pronounced and definitely shifting into like a more right wing, um, not not fascistic but definitely nationalistic perspective. Um, very like anti communist and like, um, you know, he had he had a lot of concerns. He also started like writing about like some science fiction in there. Like, he was quoted as saying that like Arthur C. Clarke's childhood's end, um, was con- he considered to be like a masterpiece. I've not read that, um, but Arthur C. Clarke wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey, um. So he was getting into some of. It's not to say that he was like getting strange, but like his, um, he's aging, right? He's he's in his thirties at this point, and he's starting to develop his a sense of the world that's more, um, you know, steadfast in its convictions. We'll say,
1: um, this whole thing kind of it parallels Taxi Driver
0: (laughs) a little bit. Yeah, man. I didn't even think about it until right now.
1: yeah then he uh you know builds up his body all of his stuff and then like no more poison (laughs) right and then he just doing all those push-ups sit-ups and then he just happens to come across something he's like you know what nope i'm standing up for it
0: it's strange because he actually doesn't ever like he's a bodybuilder quote-unquote but like he never truly gets that big if you i mean he gets shredded like a motherfucker but like he doesn't ever truly get like bodybuild well, like, it's know, also really well cool.
1: the, the the problem is um uh protein uh they yeah. there wasn't a lot of if you look at like strong men of 1966
0: probably um, quite as
1: big you don't see anyone big until arnold yeah yeah and they're like i mean there's Fox like steroids people, help that but yeah but like you don't see like like jack people until like you know i believe until like the 50s or so like, like big as we know it. Right.
0: Um, all right, well, let's shift in because this is, this is, uh, we'll kind of try to try to close things out here. I mean, so I'll, I'll mention he did write up, he wrote a few plays, um, the temp he wrote, um, obviously, as we mentioned before, he had, uh, he had completed at this point in the late sixties, um, he had completed his, like the sea of fertility series of his uh, books, which were, um, like deeply personal and co- he considered to be his magnum opus, um, this tetralogy of of books. Um, He wrote a few plays. He wrote a play called My Friend Hitler, um, which was like deeply controversial, but like it depicted a bunch of his like, um, Mm -hmm. his views on fascism, fascism and beauty through the, through like the, using these historical figures as like a a mouthpiece, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's, there's some irony there. I don't think that he was like, into fascism, while he was like a bit right winged, he wasn't quite. I mean, very anti communist. He wasn't. I don't think he was like fascistic. Um, I didn't get that sense at least. Um, but the but the but left wing people were definitely not fond of him um, at this point.
1: I think it's going to be hard to, um, you know, uh, to have a good uh, good overall reception with a with a book titled that
0: yeah well he also just like the sy- sympathizers of like right-wing ideology in the uh post-world war ii era anywhere on the globe <laughs> would probably just be other than maybe like like uh berlin <laughs> probably just like probably a tough read man you're probably gonna yeah, get yeah. tough you're not gonna get a very good reception um but like uh but yeah so things start shifting and uh he he very much is like done with the uh the emperor and the emperor's denunciation or renunciation of like, um being a godlike figure and so, he attempts a coup right okay so we're we're, we're shifting into the 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 closing of our story here, um he attempts a coup to overthrow the the imperial Japanese army, um in uh I believe where it takes place is in to- in central Tokyo. Um, and he's going to attempt to overthrow the government like this is now this is his plan um because like I said, he 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 wants to um I don't know that he had intentions of did he have intentions of like of like becoming the leader of of Japan or the new emperor of Japan or was this coup simply to just get the government out um, that had um, basically surrendered 20 years prior 25 years prior? Hmm. i'm not really sure which but one of the two um but let's let's uh we'll go through his like how how this all takes place so it's 1970 in november um and he is uh he, he attempts a coup um Mishima was by now in his uh, in his 40s and ac- acutely aware of his age. The be- quote, "The beautiful should die young and everyone else should live as long as possible, possible, end quote, he wrote in a piece on the early death of the actor James Dean. Quote, unfortunately, oh. 95% of people get it backwards with gorgeous people lingering into their 80s and hideous fools dropping dead at 21, end quote. Mishima felt his moment was passing and began plotting his final act. Everyone at some point sees life as a stage, but few live and choreograph their lives as theater and fewer still would use seppuku, um, which is a, a form of disembowelment and suicide to close out their performance for Mishima though, it was the culmination of a lifelong fantasy. The elements had been there from the very start in confessions of a mask soldier's death and blood self-transformation into a warrior had made him into the object of his desire, something beautiful, something worth worth destroying and the fixation on seppuku Seppuku had grown in plain sight. Mishima even wrote and, st- and starred in a short film, Patriotism, in which he acted out, acted out in detail. Perhaps Mishima's final act was, uh, was a political protest too, but it was certainly death as art. On the morning of his last day, Mishima posted the final book of his tetralogy, The Sea of Fertility, to the publisher. These four books written in a frantic burst of creativity were something new. Starting in 1912, shortly after the Russo-Japanese War, and ending in 1975, they span a period of extraordinary change from the ad- from the ascendance of the imperial Japan, through the annihilation of World War II, and to the emergence of a capitalist, consumerist Japan. They are h- held together by one character, Honda, perhaps a stand-in for Mishima, and the repeated reincarnation of his boyhood friend, an enduring soul s- surrounded by change and decline um and the final words of of that book um sorry i've i've deviated because i'm actually quoting an article um by uh thomas graham um from culture.com so um i didn't want to talk touch upon his like final days here um but or his final piece of work and mm-hmm. uh his the, the closing the closing um words of this book um or were were, were this, like this, like stillness. this like this aspect, this stoicism, this like stillness entrenched in the words. And that it, it goes something. It goes like this. Uh, quote: It was bright. It was a bright, quiet garden without striking features, like a rosary rubbed between the hands. The shrilling of cicadas held sway. There was no other sound. The garden was empty. He had come, thought Honda, to a place that had no memories, nothing. The noontime sun of the noontime sun of summer flowed over the still garden. So, like, I think this is like a perception of heaven, right? Like, a, or mm. a true, like heavenly peace. Um, and that was the last thing he ever wrote. And then he attempts a coup in Tokyo, and um, kidnaps. I believe he he tries to kidnap a uh, an officer or does successfully kidnap an officer, and commits. Uh, he actually commits seppuku. Um seppuku um which is a disembowelment publicly and I, I believe there's actually film of it or was there actual film of it i know there's film of the moment but i don't think there's actually film of his actual suicide i didn't see it no i watched it and it kind of you, you kind of think <clears throat> show him actually do committing it but it's really just him um on a balcony it's a very famous uh photo i've actually seen the photo before this uh, had you been exposed to it before reading about him
1: no, I don't think so. Um Are you talking uh, about the one where he's on the building?
0: Yeah, yeah. So let me read from Wikipedia here exactly how this shook out. Um So on November 20th or 25th, 1970, Mishima and four members of the Tadanokai, Tate- Tatenoki- Tadanoki um Masahiro Agawa, Masayoshi Koga, and Hiro Hiro Yasu Koga used a pretext to visit the, com- the- visit the commandant. Kenetoshi Mashida of Camp Ichigaya, a military base in central Tokyo in the headquarters of the Eastern Command of the Japanese Self-Defense Forces. Inside, they barricaded the office and tied the commander to his chair. Mishimo wore a white Hachimaki headband with a red Hinomaru, hinomaru uh, circle in the center bearing the kanji for to be reborn seven times to serve the country, which was a reference to the last words of Mas- Masasu, the younger brother of the 14th century imperialist loyal samurai kasunaki masahige as the two brothers died fighting to defend the emperor With and their-
1: that that goes back to uh the that bushido code to die yeah. so like the um they believe it, if you're gonna if you're dying to uh to serve your country you're gonna be reborn seven times like seven it's times. or not not like literally but like the the act of dying for your country is like worth seven
0: reincarnations.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Right. Okay. Um, Continuing uh, with a prepared manifesto and a banner listing their demands. Mishima stepped out onto the balcony to address the soldiers gathered below. His speech was intended to inspire a coup d'etat to restore the power of the emperor. He succeeded only in irritating the soldiers and was heckled with jeers and the noise of helicopters, grounding out some parts of his speech in his speech. Mishima rebuked the J- the Japanese self-defense uh, forces, Uh, for their passive acceptance of a constitution that, quote, denies their own existence, end quote, and shouted to rouse them. Where has the spirit of the samurai gone in his final written appeal that Morita and Agawa scattered copies of From the Balcony? Mishima expressed his dissatisfaction with the half-baked nature of the JSDF. Quote, it is is self-evident that the United States would not be pleased with a true Japanese volunteer army protecting the land of Japan. After he finished reading his prepared speech in a few minutes' time, Mishima cried out, long live the emperor, three times. He then retreated in the commandment offices, apologized to the commandment, saying, quote, we did it it to return JSDF to the emperor. I had no choice but to do this. Mishima then committed seppuku, a form of ritual suicide by disembowelment associated with the samurai. Morita had been assigned to serve as Mishima's second, cutting off his head with a sword at the end of the ritual to spare him unnecessary pain. However, Morita proved unable to complete this task, and after three failed attempts to sever Mishima's head, Kogo had to step in and complete the task. Jesus Christ. Um, Yeah. Good Lord. Um, According to the testimony of the surviving coup members, originally all four Tadanokai members had planned to commit seppuku along with Mishima. However, Mishima attempted to dissuade them, and three of the members acquiesced to his wishes. Only Morita persisted, saying, I can't let Mr. Mishima die alone, but Mishima knew that Morita had a girlfriend and still hoped to be he might live. Just before his seppuku, Mishima tried one more time to dissuade him, saying, Morita, you must live, not die. Nevertheless, after Mishima's seppuku, Morita knelt and stabbed himself in the abdomen, and Koga acted as kaishakunen again. Um, Sorry for the pronunciation there, but the coup attempt is called the Mishima incident in Japan. It is extremely famous um, and a, a graphic, graphic um, and horrifying into a really a tragic life of um, a lot of conflict. But um, I mean, went out the way that he kind of you kind of would have expected. Well, he
1: practiced to, what he preached 100 percent.
0: Not as much is true, right? Yeah, I mean he was uh, a planned suicide is a way of putting it. I mean, talk about a plan. I mean, his lifetime of planning it, but like, once again, as, as it's mentioned, as we've mentioned before, and, and I've at least said before, I just, I don't feel like this is just a horrible, I, I wish this, I wish better for Japanese culture than, than this to be a part of it, because I do think it's, I mean, the coup had failed. He had been, he probably would have been imprisoned and I, you know, He was,
1: he, if he wanted to either die fighting or just die, well, after he was embarrassed, he's like, all right, that's, I, only one way to go from here. I was laughed at. Um, but, uh, before he was, uh, before they kicked him out of the military for, uh, consumption or, uh, tuberculosis, uh, he did, he did, uh, Pilot, and he did work with everyone like uh there was a time where he was like where he might have like you know went out to do it and he said what did he say he said um um like the camaraderie uh like during that was just he he liked it um and his favorite uh jisei which is a uh death poem of the kamikaze is uh at the moment i am full of life my whole body overflowing with youth and strength it seems impossible that i shall be dead in three hours time and yet um but i think uh like you said he's always had this like idea of the like like this suicidal ideation and like a. Uh, Um, affinity for the macabre like just wanting to die for something greater than himself but if you ask me he almost figured it out like there was a there was one point where he uh, he describes when he was uh, test piloting this thing for uh, Lockheed or like just doing one of the piloting things Right. Um, he had to combine like the mental aspect of uh, the, like, breathing exercises for the G-forces, as well as, like, the physical aspect of, like, piloting the plane. So, when he was strained by the G-forces, um, having to rely on absolutely everything, like, both his mind and body, uh, with the outsides of the plane being, like, you know, inside is the life, outside is death, just because he's going, like, you know, hundreds of miles an hour, uh, 45,000 feet in the air. He, uh, he said he, uh, at that one time, it became like Hellenistic, where both ideas—the um, the inverses or the uh, what's the uh, word I'm looking for—the uh, the contradictions between it and like uh, the contradiction between physically doing and like thinking about it kind of combined into what he described as a titanic snake eating its own tail or an aura this circles
0: this this actually ties in perfectly with the uh there's an image errol's going to send me this image i'll post it on our our twitter page too there's like this beautiful um portrait um that he shared with me today that was like very emblematic of uh yukio mishima just as a person in his life journey so we're going to post that also on the twitter page along with um along with the article um, in relation to his response to the nuclear strikes as well But yeah, he um Go ahead and continue. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh
1: yeah, no, he just uh um he just like while he was doing that in that moment of like perfection of focusing both his body and his mind, uh uh it's just kinda it's kinda weird that he just perceived like an Ouroboros, which is you know, the dichotomy. It is the uh it's a symbol that just uh it's the yin and yang it's night and day it's um and that's also when his like yeah like i said his mental was just fused with his his physical but if so if you ask me i think that while he was close with the true um while he was cl- uh, close with like a, a really good idea of like, or a true philosophy of life j- is just working on yourself. I do believe that it is something more than that. And it does help when you can combine both of those aspects, but yeah, I don't think it, it, I don't think it leans one way just like it doesn't lean, lean another.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it was like a f- it, the fusing is a great term. Cause it really was like, the f- it, he had like this fusing of like multiple philosophies across different um across different domains including like greek philosophy and western philosophy and then obviously most importantly to him and it became a little bit more um it became a little bit more dissuaded you could say um his obsession with like uh with like the code of the samurai or like samurai philosophy or warrior philosophy so like um yeah, he was just an I think a fascinating character, a fascinating figure that like I didn't know much about. And to be honest with you, I don't know a, a whole lot about Japanese culture. I realized going through the research for this and how like how unbelievably rich it is. Um and um he's he's gonna I think serve as a bit of a catalyst for me personally. Um I, I wanna read I think I'm probably gonna read Confessions of a Mask to start off and probably before uh maybe before the end of the year um at least i'm going to try to get to it um because i i have a co- i've ordered a copy of it and i do want to i want to crack it open and see if i can finish it before the end of the year but i think it's just there's just a lot to unpack from japanese culture that i've never really um i've never really dove into um so far in my life i know errol i know you're 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 somewhat well versed in in the culture and its history but um for I myself tried it.
1: I, I try to um, – I, I, I really find um, just their culture fascinating in general. Um, I'm not as well-versed as I like, but to be fair, I don't really know that much about like anything, so it's okay. I know a lot <laughs> – I know a little about a lot, but not a yeah, lot. Yeah,
0: likewise, likewise. Know. But it is it – is he's a fascinating person, a fascinating story, and um, his writing is beautiful. I do know that much so far from what I've read, but I'd really like to hear – I'd like to read more. Um, I'd like to dive in fully to the Confessions of a Mass Story, get an, a better understanding of who he is. Um, maybe we'll do a follow up on. Like we've always said, this about our about our podcast. We're like very not beholden to much. Like we're just kind of coursing through as ideas come to us. Um, I mean, we have a very loose schedule in terms of what content we're going to hit, and I always leave this open ended at the end of basically any podcast that we will we always consider circling back to a topic um, should it become. Should we find ourselves, you know, I mean, this, the whole purpose of this podcast, Errol, I'm not, I don't mean to speak for you, but I know at least for myself, the idea of this podcast is simply to, um, that as we, as Errol and I become interested in things, which is a pretty wide scope of ideas, um, when something hits that quote unquote peripheral angle or that peripheral view for us, um, I, I I use the we're using the podcast as a bit of an opportunity to like hone in on it uh, temporarily as a as a topic of conversation. So like, um, should a topic call for revisitation, I think they, he probably will. And I think, Errol, I don't know if we've ever even talked about this, but we probably are going to talk books at some point and do like full dive on full full like full episodes on books. Um, and I'm sure at some point, if we do this long enough, we'll we'll circle back to to Mishima, uh, down the road and, and talk more about, you know, maybe, maybe a piece of his writing.
1: Oh yeah, for sure.
0: So, um, that's the story. Um, uh, I, I think we've hit probably the most important stuff, not too deep a dive, but enough to get the, uh, the ball rolling. Um, and hopefully if, if you, um, I do want to know, uh, just once more the article on culture.com by, uh, by thomas graham it was called yukio mishima the strange tale of a japanese infamous novelist i used that as a uh, as a source so just a small internet source um ridiculous history podcast did a a three-part series on yukio mishima that was another source i used along with uh what i thought was the most helpful um, of all the podcasts that i listened to for him it's like a four-part series i believe on yukio mishima um, and that is with uh, Willem Connor, and the podcast is called Historia Dramatica. Um, great podcast, super informative guys, So if you do, if you do listen to us, and you're looking for a deeper dive on Yukio Mishima, those are a few of the sources you can use, along with obviously Wikipedia and any other sources you can find. So, uh, Errol, you want to drop any of your sources on uh, on what you utilize to uh, unpack a little Mishima action? Oh
1: uh, yeah, yeah, I would. Um, so a um a big driver and a lot of the stuff i suggest to you is by a uh, this one youtube channel um esoterica um it is uh by a uh, uh i believe he's a doctor um justin Sledge. and he just talks about um he just talks about occult stuff um esoteric knowledge um mysticism and uh what i what i kind of knew but like what i didn't understand to the depth of which it was is a a lot of magic and like um like mysticism are all rooted in religion whether it's just like um like judaism with the kabbalah or like um just occult practices which is like christianity it's all like you know like devil worship and whatnot. like you don't it's Almost like the the Ouroboros, you don't have the negative without the positive, right? Um, yeah, occult yeah. stuff like in theory only works if religion is true, like if God is, or like you know, or whatever is real, like then that means like there is a negative to it, kind of thing. Um, right. but uh, he really leans into the kind of uh, the philosophy of that of the like the mysticism of, um of uh, sun
0: and steel right and oh um, nice yeah that's that's we didn't mention much of about sun and steel but that that is also like one of his uh most revered that actually like that book actually was like uh he wrote that while he was going undergoing like the physical transformation right
1: right where he um and that's where he put Mm -hmm. the value of his uh his physical body over his over the mental because you could only you could prove so much with the mental which is just words which doesn't matter but like your body is a canvas that is like you can physically see and then that whatever you see is like the fruit of your
0: labor Mm -hmm, right yeah okay good so that's the that's the spots then you can hit those spots up um if you're looking for a deeper dive i love it that's uh that's actually an interesting youtube page then for way beyond just this topic you can probably- oh my
1: god yeah way beyond if you like um i'm talking anything uh, anything occult uh there mm-hmm. is a actual there's a rhyme or reason behind it and this dude busts out the texts he's uh he doesn't play around uh yeah. esoterica on youtube uh this episode would have been um yeah influenced by uh, uh yukio Mich- or Mishima, uh, the philosophy of sun and steel. Awesome.
0: All right, perfect. Well, uh, that's it for tonight's podcast. Uh, This was the fourth installment of our biography series on Yukio Mishima. Um, We did it the best we could just to kind of course through, hit the plot points of an important figure in Japan. Uh, Perfect double feature uh, with the uh, episode, previous episode we did on silence. If you're looking to uh, dive back after completing this episode and stay in the far East, and here our discussion about uh, a couple hundred years prior in, in, uh, in the, uh, the film Silence by Martin Scorsese, uh, which came out in 2016. But the plot actually takes place a few hundred years prior, back in the 17th century. Um, and an important film, also a lot of Japanese uh, philosophy, a lot of Buddhist philosophy, w- alongside a lot of Christian philosophy, um, in that film. Um, and Errol and I did a pretty decent job of unpacking that film and talking about uh, its weaknesses along with its many, many strengths, um, which was also a great episode and a great talk. So uh, feel free to bounce back and check that one out. Um, we appreciate you guys listening. Any support you guys give us is always super appreciated. We love, um, we love to have as many listeners as we can, and we hope to grow and develop uh, more listenership along the way. Let's hit the, uh, outro housekeeping. Um, we are on X at peripheral V one, two, three, check us out. Also on soundcloud.com forward slash peripheral, peripheral, views. One, two, three, um, our YouTube channel, just throw us in the search bar, peripheral views podcast, all our contents up on there. Um, all, it's just audio one day. I think, I think at some point Earl and I will probably evolve into a video podcast. so You, can, you guys can get acquainted with our wonderful faces. Um, but as of now, it's just an audio feed, um, through the YouTube. If that just happens to be the platform you use most, you can find us on there. Check us out, um, on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and for YouTube, Apple, Apple podcasts, and Spotify, all three, please, please. We beg of you. Um, we don't beg too, too deeply, but we need it. We, we need some support. We'd love the support. We appreciate the support. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Um, very important to us to uh, continue developing and growing the podcast. Um, and if you like what you hear and you want to continue to support us, um, great place to catch our content as well is at PeripheralViewsPodcast.com uh, them, Them's the breaks right there, dog. We, uh, we're we closing this one out. Errol, you got any, any, uh, any concluding thoughts on Yukio Mishima or the podcast in general?
1: Um. It would just be on uh Mishima. Um like I said, I feel like it's a uh, it's a it's a good message when um when not taken literally, I guess. Like it's a good um like it, it's definitely good to stand for something, but um I believe uh in his one quote, there's not really a lot of opportunities to have a heroic death nowadays and that that's a good thing it is a good thing um so this uh having like the this like suicidal ideation i mean unless like you're like a I don't know like legitimately like a soldier or something like that um while is uh romanticized and like it could be cool i don't i don't think it's a uh a good reason just to lift weights on the off chance you need to uh you know, end it all right there. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's it's inspired me to start working on it a little bit. Just the more like you know, treating my body like the temple it is. Like you well, know, almost here, like the
0: flip. The flip of it is like, and I, I hate to quote uh, Arthur Brooks again, but he's been like kind of on my mind uh, in the last few weeks. Um, just having listened to a few podcasts and a little bit of reading. Um, one of the, like the three important questions that are related to happiness, and I'll only I won't quote all three, but I'll I'll drop at least one here. As uh, one of those questions is what, what would you die for? And, um, like it's, it's not important to have convictions in this world, but that it's also important to have, it's not important to die for something, but it's important to maybe have something to die for something that you are, that you believe in. Like it's, it's very, it's a very faith based thing to do that. And I think that's what Mishamud had and you may not agree with it. I don't think I do. I think that his like nationalism was, um, entrenched in, um, I I suppose that uh, my that might be my ignorance that prevents me from like understanding it well. Um, but um, from the pers- from the chair I'm sitting in, I I think that nationalism wouldn't be one of my things to die for. But um, you know, this is a we live in a different time and in a different place. So, um, but his his convictions and his like his his true dedication to what he believed was unquestioned.
1: Um, yeah, no, there's um not really a lot when he, not, not a lot of times where his conviction wavered all the way up till the end.
0: Yeah, so that's it. That's 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 the guy. That's the uh, figure important guy. Uh, lot to t- lot to lot to read upon. Um, if you want to continue the conversation with your uh with with the content out there that we listed and furthermore, oh, yeah,
1: because um, this is we definitely just um, this was more of a just like surface flowing. Yeah, we blew the dust off of you know the
0: chest. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect.
1: Without like we blew yeah. the dust off the Thumos off the chest. Not to... yeah.
0: And maybe we'll maybe at some point down the road we'll crack the book open, you know. Um, but if if we don't, feel free to dive in yourselves. Uh, we appreciate you guys checking in with us. Um, we hope you found this moderately informative and somewhat interesting. Um, but uh, that's it for us on the Peripheral Views podcast. Thank you guys again for joining us. Um, oh well. Before we go, we should announce um, we're, we'll be off next week. Nothing coming next week, but the following week, week we'll be sitting down to record a standalone podcast. This will not this this episode is not going to fall into our series that we typically do on uh, music biographies histories. Um, none of those series will be a, a part of this podcast. This will be a standalone piece that Errol and I are in the beginning stages of development on. Um, and it is going to be. Um, I'm not sure if we've decided on an exact title, but in general, uh, it's going to be a discussion piece, and that's going to be backed with some evidentiary um, claims or um, you know some research. We aren't we aren't just going to be spitting off the cuff here, but uh, we're going to I'll be speak discussing. For yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, there will be a little bit for sure. I mean, yeah, it's this is a podcast after all. Um, we'll be regurgitating facts half half and half-heartedly um but uh th- that 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 podcast is coming out in 2 weeks we're going to record it it's going to be on the hypersexualization of the 21st century um that is a bit of a loaded title and it's also a loose title and a working title for the podcast but generally you can expect something of a discussion on that um and I'll announce now I suppose we might as well um so that we're off next week. That one will be dropped in two weeks. The podcast to follow that, um, we have decided is going to be a little, is going to be a return to the ranking show. Uh, another one to look forward to. So you got two in the, in the, ch- in the chamber. I won't tell you exactly what's coming for the ranking show, but just know that in addition to the ranking show, that will be appropriate for the month, month of October for sure. Um, you guys uh you that that's my hint drop for that. That's coming after next uh the next podcast in a couple of weeks. So Yeah.
1: And uh who knows? I might uh just start a uh just a video channel where I don't talk at all and I just live weights.
0: I'll watch after
1: the after the whole uh after the whole Mishima thing. I might just like, you know, just don't curling. Have podcast.
0: No sound period. No, actually yeah. sound. Just no music. Just right. you just grunting. Exactly. Just just sweating.
1: that is just that's all that i care about
0: (laughs) just just curling them weights errol's about to get bill he's about to get swole on that uh on that lovingly note um let's close it out thank you guys again for listening don't forget to subscribe to errol's weightlifting youtube channel Be be sure to check back in with us In a couple of weeks uh, We'll be discussing the hypersexualization Of the 21st century Uh, Check back in with us then Can't wait to talk to you guys again Thanks again for listening